This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. The more we open to the truth of change, the more we open to it and experience it on a moment-to-moment level, uh, our minds and our hearts relax. And we really let go in our lives of so many causes of distress and suffering. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Inside Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Some time ago, I was reflecting on some of the core aspects of the Buddhist teachings. And then in one sitting, somehow they just arranged themselves uh, in a certain order. Uh, And I was quite surprised by it. It just all kind of fell into place in a certain way. And I called uh, this arrangement of teachings... Uh, I called it the map of wisdom because it brings together um, a variety of teachings. uh, But as is uh, remarkable about all the teachings of the Buddha, they just all mesh and fit together so beautifully, you know, as they express different aspects of the Dharma. So this evening I'd like to talk about this map and how different of these essential teachings relate to each other. Now, some of these teachings will be obvious and just part of our everyday lived experience. And some of the teachings will reflect more subtle aspects of the Dharma. Now, this map of wisdom is going to unfold uh, over two talks. So I'm just going to go this evening and get as far as I can get in an hour. So it may end abruptly. And then I'll pick it up uh, on Thursday and hopefully bring it to completion. So we'll begin with perhaps the most fundamental foundational understanding of the Dharma. Foundational understanding of the whole journey. And it was encapsulated in a short little dialogue that Suzuki Roshi, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, and one of his students had. So this this is what his student uh, said to him and asked him. I've been listening to your lectures for years, but I still don't understand. Could you please put them in a nutshell? Can you reduce Buddhism to one phrase? Okay, Suzuki replied, everything changes. Now the implications of this very simple statement are enormous. And some way we can understand the whole of the Dharma 
you know, as just an elaboration of this one teaching. Everything changes. Before exploring some of the implications, which are profound, of that statement, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the ways that we do experience change and impermanence in our lives. It can come from some very obvious observations that are just part of our ordinary lives. These are experiences that we all have, but sometimes, and perhaps even often, we just don't pay attention to it in, in a deep way. We overlook it. So just, just as a few examples, and as I say, a lot of it is, is extremely obvious, revealing the truth of change, that everything changes. We see it very obviously in changes of nature. The changes of weather, the changes of season, of course, the rather, rather catastrophic changes of our climate. See it particularly you're in, a, in a unique way, this truth of change, uh, in New England. And those of you who have been there, either at IMS or other areas of New England, it's quite remarkable that there are miles and miles and miles of old stone walls uh, through the woods. You know, you, you walk through the forest, and right in the middle of the forest, there are these stone walls, and then there are uh, stone foundations of old abandoned houses. And it's not hard to imagine kind of the people who lived there and built those walls and lived in those houses and had life experiences uh, as vivid as our own. But in walking through the, the woods now and seeing the remnants, uh, where are they now? Where, where's all the activity of their lives now? You know, there's nothing remaining. It's sort of like a dream. There's changes in society, you know, of the rise and fall of whole civilizations. <laughs> Just recently, I was listening uh, <clears throat> to one of these uh, great courses, books, and I was listening on Audible. And this particular course was particularly fascinating to me. It was about the rise and fall of empires before Alexander the Great. So this was 3,000 years of history before Alexander. And this whole course was just, it was highlighting you know, the arise of these empires, you know, the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Hittites, and it went on and on, Egypt. And it was just so interesting and so uh, resonant in a way with what I sometimes feel is happening now with our own empire you know, as things, the, these civilizations came into being, they flourished, they become powerful, they engage in all kinds of activities, often with a lot of conflict and warfare, and then conditions changed and they disintegrated and disappeared and a new empire arose. So this has been going on forever. I mean, this is it's kind of the history of the human race. There's changes, of course, in the experiences of our relationships, our work situations, changes in our bodies, changes in our minds. When we pay attention in any of these realms, you know, from the very individual to the global, we will see it's completely obvious that everything changes. I want to mention a phrase which highlights this. And <clears throat> I came across it as I was listening to the suttas, the Buddhist discourses. Uh, they're all available, uh, like on Audible. 
We can listen to them as well as read them. And what I found is that often in listening, <coughs> we take it in in a different way, at least I do, than when I'm reading. So I was listening to this discourse, and there was one line, which I must have read many, many times, but never with much impact. When I heard it, it really struck me. Something became so vivid when I heard this phrase, I think partly because it's a little unusual in English. It's not, it's not how we would usually phrase things. So it's very simple. It was just talking about how everything changes, becoming otherwise. So that was the phrase, becoming otherwise. That everything, all the time, in every moment, is becoming otherwise. And for me, that phrase, I don't know, it just, it just highlighted or made so vivid the essential instability of everything. Because everything is always becoming otherwise. And I really started applying it. Uh, I was on retreat as I was listening to these suttas. So I just started using the phrase, you know, in my own experience. I was doing walking meditation and, you know, in a certain moment, my knee started to hurt. Oh, becoming otherwise. <laughs> you know, something broke in my house. Oh, becoming otherwise. It just highlights the fact that we cannot, it's impossible to count on things staying the same, staying the way we want them to stay, because everything is always becoming otherwise. That's just another way of tuning into this statement of Suzuki Roshi which I said really has profound implications. We see it in science, you know, the birth and death of stars and of galaxies, and then the inconceivably rapid movement of subatomic particles. You know, I was reading someplace <clears throat> that some of these subatomic particles, their movement is measured in trillionth of a trillionth of a second. <laughs> it's, you know, we can't even comprehend it. How, how quickly things are moving and changing on the most fundamental level, you know, of this physical material world. You know, and we think things are so solid and stable and fixed, but they're not. So obviously, our ordinary perception is probably not picking things up on the level of trillionths of a trillionth of a second. But what we do find in our practice through the gradual cultivation and strengthening of mindfulness and concentration, we come to see that what seems so solid and fixed and singular is really changing and moving all the time. What we think is solid, <clears throat> a singular experience is not just one thing. It's made up of a flow of many changes. And we can see it, you can all see it very simply, even within a breath or a step. You know, conventionally, we might say, yeah, there's, there's a breath, as if the breath is a single thing or a step. But as we're paying attention, we see that within a breath, there are innumerable sensations, vibrations, fluctuations, you know, in temperature. Or in a step, the many sensations of a movement. Or we hear the sound of a bell. It's not one thing. You know, when we're really listening to the sound, so many different kind of vibrations and changes of pitch and all of that. So I'd like to do a little experiment with all of you, which will illustrate an important point, revealing the importance of seeing things in this way. 
So just notice how your hands are resting right now. You know, they're probably touching something, either they're you know, resting on one another or resting on your lap or your legs. And then if I ask you, but pretend you've never sat before. So I'm asking the non-meditator you. Okay, well, what are you experiencing? So the non-meditating you would probably answer, I feel my hands resting together. That would be the conventional, ordinary answer. But we don't feel our hands resting together. There is no sensation called hand. We don't feel hand. We feel certain sensations and then we overlay a concept on the sensations that we're feeling. We create the concept, which is kind of thought. We call it hand or hands. And then because we have not yet begun our meditation career, we think that's what we're feeling. But there's something called a hand that we're feeling not realizing that it's a concept. Now, you might well be wondering, so what? (laughs) What's important about all this? Well, it's of tremendous significance in terms of this meditative journey. For the simple reason that the concept doesn't change. Hand today, hand yesterday, hand tomorrow... So as long as we're perceiving or being with our experience in in terms of the concepts we have about them, we are not tuning in to the experience of the momentary flow of changes that is always going on. And so we begin to get a very fixed notion of reality, that there are these solid things more or less unchanging even though over time we might acknowledge, you know, that the hands grow old. But as long as we're in the conceptual level, we are not deepening our understanding. We're not refining our perception of change. And it's very interesting to notice in our lives that we are mostly living in the world of concept. And that's why a meditation (laughs) retreat you know, where we drop down from that level to the level of direct experience. So now if you really feel your hands resting on one another, now now be your meditative self. Okay, what am I feeling? Oh, feeling pressure, warmth, tingling, whatever. Those are the actual sensations being felt and they are in continuous change. So it's by dropping into this level that we really begin to refine our understanding of this fundamental insight into the changing nature of everything. So this is, this is like a big step in our meditative journey when we go from an awareness a simple awareness of what it is that's happening to an awareness of the changing process of what's happening. So it's almost as if we go from the content level to the process level of things continually becoming otherwise. Uh, And we need to see this again and again more and more deeply. There was a very famous Burmese monk. Uh, he lived around the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. Uh, his name was Lady Sayadaw. Not L-A-D-Y, but L-E-D-I. <laughs> Lady Sayadaw. So very famous. He was a great scholar and um, very realized being. So this is what he said. That not seeing arising and passing away of phenomena is ignorance. 
while seeing all phenomena as impermanent, is the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. I hope you see it really highlights the importance of this shift. Dropping in or dropping down from the level of our concepts about things to the direct experience of seeing the continual arising and passing of things becoming otherwise all the time. That's the doorway to all the stages of insight and to all the different levels of awakening. So how does this happen? How does seeing impermanence lead to these insights? You know, what are the insights that actually come from seeing things change, from seeing directly and with refinement uh, the nature of change? Well, one of the insights that itself has tremendous implications for how we live is beginning through seeing change, things always becoming otherwise, we begin to experience very directly the basic, ultimately unsatisfying, unfulfilling nature of conditioned experience. Conditioned experience means everything that arises, it changes. It arises because of conditions and it changes. So to say that we begin to get insight into the ultimately unsatisfying or unfulfilling nature of our conditioned existence, our conditioned lives, does not mean that we don't experience all kinds of happiness and pleasures, because we do. That's, that's part of our lives. Rather, it's the understanding that no matter how pleasant, you know, something is or how much happiness or joy we experience in the moment from it, it's the understanding that Conditioned experience can never provide a lasting happiness precisely because they don't last. You know, and it just seems so obvious. How many beautiful or wonderful experiences have you had in your lives? Countless. We're fortunate, mostly. We just have so many beautiful experiences. But where are they now? Now, what's so amazing about the seductive power of the world? And I, I just find this just so striking that when we look back at our lives, the ephemeral nature of all that we've experienced, the dreamlike nature of it all, just seems so clear. You know, when we look back at all the things that have happened, it's just like, it's like a dream. It's like remembering a dream. And yet when we look ahead, we keep getting uh, enticed by all the experiences to come, forgetting that they will also soon be past. So it's like when we look back, we understand it very clearly. And as soon as we look ahead, we completely forget it. <laughs> and this is, this is so much a part of our lives. You know, looking forward, leaning forward, anticipating the next hit of experience. You know, it could be the next event in our lives. The next day of work, the next project, the next vacation. Here it might be the next meal. You know, <laughs> or the next breath. You know, we're always leaning into the next as if the next whatever will finally fulfill us. But of course, because of this great truth of change, of things becoming otherwise, it's incapable of providing that lasting fulfillment. 
because it soon passes in to the dreamlike state of the past. And as many of you will know, though not all of you, uh, that the older we get it, it all seems to be flying by ever more quickly. And somebody had once made the comment, I read this someplace, that when you turn, I forget what the age was, 55 or 60, 65, uh, that breakfast seems to come every 15 minutes. <laughs> and it is really like that. I mean, the, the, the sense of time as, as we get older, it really speeds up. When we truly and deeply see the truth of change, and this is what our practice is. Now, this is really what we are learning from being mindful of the various aspects of our experience. It's not only what it is that's happening, but by repeated mindfulness of it all, we, we see it directly. It's not some theory and it's not what somebody just is saying. We see for ourselves the continually changing nature of everything. And in seeing that, we deepen our understanding that attachment to what in its nature changes is the cause of suffering. So one, one meditator came into an interview and he was describing... Uh, describing their experience of it and he said just this understanding is like rope burn you know what rope burn is if, if you're trying to hold on to a rope and it's being pulled through your hand the tighter you hold on you're going to get rope burn we're living in a state of rope burn <laughs> to the degree that we're attached really to anything, because everything is in a state of change. Everything is impermanent. And so this is one of the key understandings of the Buddha's teaching, that attachment or clinging to that which is impermanent is a fundamental cause of suffering in our lives. So it's not hard, I think, to understand this intellectually. But our practice is to make it vivid, you know, in our lived experience. So we actually begin to feel the rope burn in our lives when we're holding on, when we're grasping, when we're clinging. You know, we can see this so clearly with our changing minds and bodies or, or the minds and bodies of others. If we're attached to this body or anybody's body, staying a certain way, <laughs> it's not good news <laughs> because it doesn't stay a certain way. There's always changes through aging, through illness, through accidents, through just the process of, process of aging, always continual change. Now, it's quite different and sometimes difficult to realize that all these changes in our lives, which are always going on, really in every moment, they're not a mistake. It's not that we're doing something wrong. It is the very nature of this mind and body. And this is what the Buddha was just pointing to and reminding us and urging us to look at and to see and to take in. Everything changes. Everything is continually becoming otherwise. And this is what happens to everyone, to everything. So there's one simple teaching of the Buddha which just expresses this very succinctly. And this is a teaching, when you read the discourses, when people heard this one very simple teaching, as the stories go, 
Many people got enlightened just hearing it. Ready? <laughs> this could be the moment. <laughs> but you really have to take it in. Not here. You have to take it in here. That whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So simple. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So, of course, I had read this thousands of times. And in reading it, I always understood it. Or in reading, I would be taking it in on a kind of conceptual, intellectual level, kind of just acknowledging the obviousness of it. Yeah, everything that has the nature to rise will also pass away. But then a few years ago, I was on a self-retreat. I was just sitting and meditating, and this line came to my mind. It was very interesting because I wasn't reading it and I wasn't even listening to it. It just arose in my mind in the midst of a meditation. So it landed or it, it arose from, it's like it arose from within the very process. If you can get a sense of what I mean. It wasn't kind of a concept out there. But right in this process of being with the flow of my experience, it's like almost enmeshed in that flow, this line came, oh, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And then my mind did something that really had a strong impact on me and my practice. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Therefore, there's nothing to want. And it was particularly in the context of meditate, the meditative experience. Because whatever we might want is going to also pass away. And just when that understanding arose, oh, therefore there's nothing to want, I could feel my mind drop back from a wanting or a leaning into the next moment that I wasn't even aware of. And this is a tendency that is very common in meditation practice, so I want to highlight it. The energetics of leaning into the next moment. You know, so we're, we're, we're pretty present. I mean, we're there with what's arising, but with, we're there either in order for something else to happen or in anticipation of something else happening. So it's that leaning into this, an element of wanting in that, although it can be very subtle. So I'll just give uh, an example of this, which you might be able to relate to. Um, so one of, one of uh, contemporary teachers, Burmese teacher, Saida Utejaniya, uh, one, of, one of his coaching uh, remarks, you know, for people meditating, he'll often, he'll often urge people in their practice to be just checking the attitude in their minds. So it's not only being mindful of what it is that's arising, but also to look, well, what's the attitude towards it? You know, how are we relating to it? You know, so it's check the attitude became like a little mantra. So one time, it was a different time than this. I was just sitting and just feeling my breath. And it was a completely ordinary sitting. Nothing special was going on wasn't particularly difficult, wasn't particularly profound. I was just sitting, feeling my breath. And then um, Saito Tejaniya's remark came to my mind, oh, check the attitude. So I just kind of asked in my mind, well, what's the attitude in my mind now? And it was so interesting because 
something happened. It didn't even require an answer. The simple asking of the question was enough for my mind to settle back from a wanting that I had not even seen was there. And it was very subtle when I reflected on it. As I was feeling the breath, there was just some very, you know, maybe a wanting of calm or a wanting of more concentration, something. And in the asking of the question, what's the attitude? As I say, just the question. I felt my mind relax back into that place of non-craving, non-wanting. It's going back to the, the earlier uh, story. Therefore, there's nothing to want. Because in our meditation, whatever it is that we're leaning into will be just another passing experience. And this is the key point. If you don't get anything else from this retreat, I hope you get this. The whole point of the practice is not about some new experience. It's about not craving. That's really what we're practicing. But I know for myself and, you know, 50 years of teaching, it's just so common that we engage in our practice with different kinds of wantings. And they're, they're wantings for good things. You know, so that's not the issue. You know, wanting concentration or karma, the factors of enlightenment that uh, Dara spoke of the other night. But all of that is in the service of the mind of non-craving. Because that's where the freedom is. And this is what's contained in the Buddhist teachings of the Four Noble Truths. You know, there's the truth of dukkha, which I'm going to delve into a little bit more. Truth of, say, suffering or unsatisfactoriness. And then the cause of dukkha. What did the Buddha say? The second noble truth. The cause of suffering or of dukkha is craving. The third noble truth which expresses the experience of the liberated mind, the end of craving. And the fourth noble truth, of course, is the Noble Eightfold Path, the path of practice. Are you getting a sense of what I'm trying to convey? <laughs> that, And this all ties together. It's through the seeing of impermanence, things continually becoming otherwise that we see that clinging or wanting or craving is the cause of suffering. And that our practice in being mindful of what's arising and being mindful and experiencing directly the truth of its continually changing nature, that's what leads to the mind relaxing back from wanting. And so we actually get a taste even for a moment of the third noble truth, of we get a taste, a genuine taste of freedom in every moment when we drop back from the wanting, drop back from the craving. It's very interesting. And this is what happened when, you know, I reflected on that line, whatever has the nature to rise will also pass away, therefore there's nothing to want. And I could feel my mind for those few moments not wanting. And then it was kind of looking at or experiencing the nature of the not wanting mind. And it was a very vivid experience. It just might have been for just some few moments, but a very vivid experience of peace of freedom, the mind free of craving. So 
I am just emphasizing this to the extent that I am. So you have as deep an understanding as possible of the whole point of what we're doing. You know, because it's so easy to get caught up in kind of the, the ups and downs and the stories and whatever's happening in our meditation. And we can, we can forget why we're doing it. And that's why this practice is so profound. It's not about just creating some wonderful experience, even a wonderful meditative experience. It's about freeing the mind. And we free the mind through letting go of craving, of clinging, of attachment. So that's really what's being practiced through all of the various tools and methods and you know, suggestions we might have. Okay. The more we open to the truth of change, the more we open to it and experience it on a moment-to-moment level, uh, our minds and our hearts relax. And we really let go in our lives of so many causes of distress and suffering. So the first thing we learn through seeing impermanence is the ultimately unsatisfying nature of conditioned phenomena. And as I say, it can be satisfying in the moment and for a period of time, but it's not ultimately satisfying because it doesn't last. And so the Buddha called this insight into the unsatisfying nature, the inherently unsatisfying nature, he called this the truth of dukkha, the first noble truth. Now, dukkha is a Pali word, as most of you are familiar with. It has a very interesting etymology, which I think really conveys uh, in some way our experience of dukkha in our lives. Not the, not the big dramatic you know, massive suffering or whatever, but even just the ordinary, just in the ordinary course of our lives. So, this is the etymology of the word dukkha. So it said that ka of dukkha, at least in one meaning, is the axle hole of a wheel. You know, it's the hole where the axle goes in. And do, as in dukkha, means hard or difficult. So when we are clinging or attached to that which in its nature is changing, the axle is not fitting correctly into the center hole of the wheel. And therefore we get a very bumpy ride in our lives because it's not fitting well. We're not in harmony with the truth of how things are. And so I I just find that a very uh, uh, clear, clear image, you know, or a way of understanding what dukkha really means. You know, when when we're not in sync, when we're not in harmony, it's a bumpy ride. Okay, so the second important implication of impermanence, the first one is just seeing the ultimately unsatisfying nature of conditioned impermanent phenomena. So the second perhaps less obvious implication of this very basic truth in which Suzuka Roshi summarized all, all of Buddhism, everything changes, is seeing more and more clearly the empty nature of phenomena. So I'd like to talk a little bit about this because uh, just the word empty in English, people sometimes you know, wonder, well, what does that mean exactly? You know, the, the emptiness of things. Uh, so one of the meanings is insubstantial, 
Um, I'll, give, I'll just give a couple of examples. Think of a time when you went to a really good movie. Back in the day. <laughs> when we could go to the movies. <laughs> Absorbed in the story. You know, caught up in all the action, feeling all the attendant emotions, you know, of being absorbed in the story. So it's a common experience, and it's why we go to the movies, because we want that experience. But what's really happening? Is there anybody really getting chased or falling in love or dying or, you know, all the things that we think are happening and are responding to as if they're really happening, but they're not happening at all. Really, all that's happening is changing pixels of light on the screen. But because we're not seeing that, and we wouldn't, I was going to say we wouldn't probably pay $10 to see it, but maybe if we could, it would be worth the 10 bucks. So that's, that's just an example of basically the emptiness of that phenomenon. What we think is there is not really there, right? We're just, we're kind of in the illusion that's being created. So this is not to suggest that we don't engage with the stories the dramas uh, of our lives and of our ordinary conventional perceptions. Because we do. I mean, we're living in the story of our lives, you know, in terms of relationships and just how we see the world. We've created a whole, whole story that we live in. So it's not to suggest we don't engage in that because we do and we, we need to in a certain way. But if we can also see on a deeper level, seeing the more elemental changing nature of whatever it is that we're engaged in, we don't fall so easily into patterns of clinging and attachment. Because on the story level, it's very easy, you know, to get attached and cling to what we like and enjoy and try to push away and have aversion to what we don't like and don't want. So on the ordinary, conventional level of our lives, we're continually being buffeted by wanting and aversion, by clinging and aversion. Even as we're engaged in the story of our lives and all the dramas of our lives, if at the same time we have some understanding, some really direct experience of the deeper, more fundamental level of change, the changing elements, then we can engage in the world, engage with other people and engage in our stories. But we have a certain wisdom about it all. We see on a fundamental level the essential emptiness of it all. So then we engage without so much attachment without so much clinging and craving. And so our lives become much more easeful. We have a lot more happiness in our lives. So this insight into the insubstantiality of phenomena leads to an understanding of what in many Buddhist traditions are called uh, the two truths, or two levels of truth. That is the relative level and the more ultimate level. I'll just uh, give you an example. If you take any ordinary object, like a glass, we can have the glass and we can appreciate it and understand the design of it and the use of it, and we do use it, drink water out of it. So there's the reality of the glass. At the same time, if we looked at that glass, which, by the way, I've never done, through a high-power microscope, 
we wouldn't see glass at all. We would see a whole different level of reality. There's no glass on the level of, let's say, subatomic particles, you know, or atoms. Or, on that level, glass doesn't even exist. And yet, in our ordinary level, conventional level of reality, it does exist, and we use it. When we can begin to see the more ultimate level, you know, of the insubstantial nature, then it allows us to engage on the relative conventional level, <coughs> excuse me, where we are mostly living our lives. But because of the wisdom we have of the more ultimate level, then we don't get so caught. You know, we don't get uh, so conditioned by the clinging and grasping and attachment. And so our lives become much more easeful. Now, another way of understanding our practice, besides the largest context of understanding that what we're really practicing is non-craving, another way of understanding our practice is that we learn how to integrate these two levels of relative conventional ordinary reality and the deeper understanding of the more ultimate reality. So just, you know, using the example of the glass, it's one thing. It's not that ultimate reality is and relative reality <coughs> is here. Same thing but seen from different levels, it's seen from different perspectives. So there is a unity to it. In our practice, we want to engage the mindfulness with seeing both the conventional level of the body and taking care of the body and just our ordinary way of being with it, and at the same time, understanding the more ultimate level of just like there's no body, no glass, there's really no body on that level. It's just the elements, you know, and in Buddhism, the elements are talked about in terms of, you know, traditionally earth, air, fire, water, but it's just it's really the sensation level of experience. So there are a few expressions which convey the union of these two levels. One was from a Korean Zen master, uh, son's name. He founded the Providence Zen Center and has many, many branch monasteries around. He died some years ago. So he had a, a wonderful phrase. He said, there's no right and no wrong. That's the ultimate level. On the ultimate level of momentary change of subatomic particles, there's no right and no wrong. But right is right and wrong is wrong. That's how we have to live. Both understandings. There's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. And we don't want to forget either side of that. So another expression... <laughs> of the same union is <clears throat> by the very, very famous Tibetan master, uh, Padmasambhava. He's, he's the being who brought Buddhism uh, to Tibet and great adept, you know, great enlightened being. And he said, though my vision of emptiness, the ultimate level, is as vast as the sky. My attention to the law of karma, that is, action and result, is as fine as a grain of barley flour. But you see, it's, it's the same thing. It's like on the level of emptiness, the mind is vast. And yet within that, we need to be paying attention carefully to our actions, 
There's no right and no wrong. What right is right and wrong is wrong. And so this leads us to take a lot of care with the actions we engage in. So here, kind of an important question arises. How do we go from a conceptual, intellectual understanding of all this, of these insights, to a daily lived experience of them? Because that's what's transformative. I mean, we we can comprehend a lot of these teachings on an intellectual level, and they're profound, and they can have you know, some impact on us. But the real transformation is when we really begin to live the insights, you know, to see them very directly in our own experience. So it's not just what the Buddha is saying or somebody else is saying. So understanding this impermanent, insubstantial nature of phenomena is only half the story. The other half, which is of tremendous importance in our lives in terms of creating well-being and happiness for ourselves and others, has to do with one meaning of the word dharma or dhamma in Pali. And as you know, it's a Pali word. It has many meanings. So it's good to kind of just get some sense of what's included in this one term because uh, it's just very profound. And it's, you know, when we say, what are we practicing? We're practicing the Dharma. So what does that mean? As I say, it has many meanings. It can mean the truth, the law, the way things are, the nature of things, or just nature itself. It can refer to the teachings of the Buddha. Dharma is also the word used to describe all the individual elements of mind and body. They're all dharmas. So you see it has very broad meaning. So in this unfolding map of wisdom, I want to emphasize one particular meaning of the word dharma. And that is the understanding dharma as lawfulness. That things are not happening accidentally. Everything is happening lawfully according to different laws of nature. Things happen when certain conditions come together for them to happen. And if those conditions are not there, it's not going to happen. You know, we can see this very clearly in the physical world. You know, the laws of science have just described in increasingly, you know, accurate and refined ways how material phenomena come into being and change and the laws governing you know, the unfolding of material phenomena. These are the laws of biology, chemistry, physics, you know, neuroscience. So in science, it's very easy, I think, to understand and to connect with the lawfulness of nature. Things just don't happen, you know, randomly. Um, one hour <laughs> I'm right in the middle <laughs> I'll take I'll take two or three more minutes and then I, was, I was wondering where where it was gonna end <laughs> okay just just one example of the lawfulness and then there's a whole part two <laughs> we'll further elaborate all this but one example of what might bring together some of the various things we've talked about so far, just think of a rainbow appearing in the sky. 
you know, after a summer storm, a rainbow may appear. And for most of us, I think, just brings, you know, brings a smile. You know, there's a certain delight and joy in seeing the beauty of the rainbow. And then it slowly fades. So what actually has happened? There was a physical process of some changing elements of air and moisture and light coming together in a certain way to create the appearance of a rainbow. So it's it's a lawful occurrence. Given those conditions, a rainbow will appear. But a couple of things to just highlight about this process. One is that the conditions creating the rainbow were not always there. So conditions came together at a certain point. The rainbow appeared. And then when the conditions change, the rainbow disappears. So right here, I mean, this is such a simple example. There are, everything is revealing this, but it just shows us the truth of changing conditions, changing the way we're experiencing the world. And then with even more attentiveness, more careful attention or inquiry or investigation, we begin to understand that there, this is, Key point. We really begun to understand that there is no thing in itself which is a rainbow. A rainbow is simply an appearance arising out of certain conditions together. But it's not as if the rainbow is a thing in itself. Is this Clear? I mean, it seems fairly obvious. So the import of this, which I'll go into more detail next time. You know, in Buddhism, there's a lot of talk about non-self and selflessness. And Impermanence is pretty easy to understand, even at least conceptually, even if we need practice to really see it directly, moment to moment. And dukkha is certainly easy to understand. But selflessness or non-self, that's, that's not so obvious. You know, and people often have a lot of, but what does that mean? So somebody once asked a Tibetan teacher, is the self real? Because it, fe- it feels real. And so I'll just read, <laughs> I was going to paraphrase it, but I think I'll just read what he said. So in, in the question, you know, is the self real? He, he responded, it's not that you're not real. We all think we're real. And that's not wrong. You are real. But you think you're really real. (laughs) You exaggerate it. (laughs) So in that respect, it's like we're all rainbows. The rainbow is real, but it's not really real. And it's just that understanding of rainbow which we can apply to this whole mind-body process that we call self that we call I. Self is a designation like rainbow. It's a designation for this constellation of changing mind-body experiences. But just like rainbow is not a thing in and of itself, simply a designation for an appearance, self is a designation for an appearance of the pattern of our mind-body elements coming together in certain ways. So this this could be a good place (laughs) to to end part one. 
Um, and then we'll see next time. We'll see where all of this is leading. But hopefully this created some of the foundational understandings, you know, of what our practice is really all about and the nature of insight, you know, and the possibility of freedom. Um, so let's just sit for a moment or two. Enjoy your rainbow-like nature. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash insight hour.